0: The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be here with you, Church. I want to welcome you and say thank you in the name of Jesus for being here. And welcome any visitors with us. It's been encouraging to get to worship with you this morning. And I want to uh, remind you of what Rick announced earlier, that uh, other opportunity for worship coming up on August 20th at uh, Green Pastures Church of Christ in the evening. That'll be Sunday at 5 p.m. That'll be after the food drive on the 13th. So uh, you can check with Rick or Ben or I afterwards if you want more information about that. And I also wanted to remind you that our Springs Church sermon podcast is still up and running. Uh, if you're wanting to get back and kind of take a look at an old sermon or catch up, uh, we've got all the sermons from this Word of the Lord series on there and everything from Ephesians. And uh, so you can find that on possibly on your phone. Uh, if you go to your podcast app and just search the Springs Church, um, or you can find it online at thesprings.cc by hovering over the messages tab and clicking on the sermon podcast. Um, I realize the catch-22 of it is that you'll probably need to go back and listen to this sermon to figure out how to go back and listen to sermons, but if you need, again, just grab me after church and I'll I'll walk you through it. Uh, But we are continuing our Word of the Lord series this morning, and our text this morning from the lectionary is Psalm 119 verses 129 through 136. Uh, So when I finish reading the text, I'll say the word of the Lord, and if you would respond with thanks be to God. So let's begin in verse 129. Your rules are marvelous, therefore I observe them. Your instructions are a doorway through which light shines. They give insight to the untrained, I open my mouth and pant, because I long for your commands. Turn toward me and extend mercy to me, as you typically do to your loyal followers. Direct my steps by your word. Do not let any sin dominate me. Deliver me from oppressive men, so that I can keep your precepts. Smile on your servant. Teach me your statutes. Tears stream down from my eyes because people do not keep your law. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for a new morning. And our hearts are grateful today, Lord, for your instructions. Our hearts are eager for your precepts and God our hearts uh, long for your presence God I pray that you would uh, bless us with a word of truth this morning bless us with um, insight and wisdom and grace God bless me with the gift of preaching and let your Holy Spirit be with us and speak to us God, we ask all these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The prosecution called Joyce Purtle to the stand. Joyce was an older blind woman who loomed large in the South Dakota Church of Christ of my youth, and she was in the courtroom that way to stand that day to stand witness to an event that had happened that she had witnessed, actually, via her police scanner that she was listening to. The uh, casual pastime of a blind woman who didn't much care for the radio. And so she was listening to this police scanner and she heard a call, a distress call come in uh, for a gas leak that was happening at a rental property actually near her house. And so, call went in, there was a promise to send response, nothing happened. Another call, another promise, nobody came. Eventually, almost an hour later, there was an explosion. And so when this incident eventually went to trial, Joyce was called as one of the chief witnesses to the events. And Joyce delivered her testimony of everything she had heard and the memory of all that had happened. And the defense tried to discredit her by calling her memory into question. And as I said, Joyce was an older woman with no eyesight, and she had a curious way about her, a curious look, and so the defense had tried to take Joyce and kind of discredit her character, discredit her memory. And then the prosecution did something interesting. They opened up a Bible for others to see, and they asked Joyce to begin, and she started from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 1, and began reciting from memory, absolutely verbatim, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And eventually, the courtroom had heard enough, and they closed the Bible, and Joyce got off the stand, and her memory and her testimony were completely 100% intact. And when I first heard this story about Joyce, I thought of the incredible nature of this kind of dramatic courtroom moment, this kind of dramatic recitation, and her incredible virtue of memorization. But the more I've thought about it, the more I think there is an even more remarkable virtue on display in that moment. And I think it's complete delight in the Word of God. Joyce didn't memorize Scripture because she thought it would make for a handy legal tool one day. She didn't memorize scripture because she liked to recite it as a party trick to entertain her guests, if that would be entertaining. Joyce memorized scripture because she absolutely delighted and loved the law and precepts and word of God. Joyce stored up the words of God in her heart and mind because she deeply, deeply loved them and she deeply, deeply loved God. And I thought of Joyce this week because her heart is the heart of our psalmist. Joyce's heart is the heart of the writer of Psalm 119, of a life defined and lived by the instructions and teachings of God. That is the heart I hear when I read Psalm 119. And I wish I had more time to tell you about Psalm 119 as a whole and the whole context of it. Um, But some of you may already know that it is far and away the longest psalm, the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. And some of you may also know that it is actually an acrostic poem. Psalm 119 is 22 different stanzas of eight lines apiece. And each of those stanzas, 22 of them, corresponds to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so the first eight lines in the first stanza all begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the second eight lines with the second letter, and so on and so forth. And so it's it's this incredible, incredible project, this incredible poem. And another amazing thing about it Uh, with these 22 stanzas of eight lines apiece, there are also eight words that appear over and over and over again in Psalm 119. They're words for the law of God, the Word of God. There's a word for law, statute, precept, decree, command, judgment, word, promise. And these words permeate the entire Psalm. Because like Joyce Pertle, The psalmist who wrote this psalm loved God's decrees. They were deeply, deeply a part of the author's heart and mind and soul. And so I want to focus in on the law of God this morning. And I want to focus in on three things that God's law can teach us. Three things that we can learn that that God's law teaches us to lament, to love, and to learn. So something the law of God teaches us to to lament, to love, and to learn. And so we begin this morning in Psalm 119, in our little stanza. And the first thing we learn, the first thing God's law teaches us is to lament injustice. And even though this is the first point of our exposition this morning, it's actually the last verse of our stanza, verse 136, if you'll turn over with me. The psalmist says, Tears stream down from my eyes because people do not keep your law. I think I I need to say briefly this morning that the tears of this psalmist are not those of somebody who is acting holier than thou. You know, criticism has actually been leveled against this psalm and it's focused on the law, that, that the author maybe loves the law even more than the author loves God. You know, or, or that there are actually kind of seeds in this psalm that eventually germinate in the self-righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. But to say that, I think, is to miss the heart of what's happening here. Because each time the author of this psalm talks about loving the law, it is referring to the author of that law. Behind every instance of loving God's precepts and teachings and commands, is a heart that loves God himself. So these are the tears of someone who is deeply enamored with God, who is committed to the goodness of God's law, and is therefore saddened by the chaos sown by those who disregard it. Because God's precepts are designed to bring shalom. God's precepts are designed to bring peace, to bring life. And wholeness. And yet time and time again, as we saw in, our, in one of our Romans texts a few weeks ago, sin creeps in and sows death instead. And so the psalmist says, tears stream down from my eyes because people do not keep your law. And when I hear that voice, I also hear the voice of somebody else who read this psalm. I hear the voice of somebody else who would have sung and read and prayed this psalm and the entire Psalter their whole life. And I hear Jesus in Luke chapter 19. He's outside the city of Jerusalem. And Luke says that as he came near and saw the city, he wept over it. Saying, if you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, But now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's life-giving law. He is the, the word, the very source of that life, and Jerusalem couldn't see it. Jerusalem couldn't see it, and so Jesus weeps for them. He weeps for them because like the psalmist, he knows that when God's law is neglected, chaos reigns. When God's law is neglected, sin reigns in our lives. It ensnares us. When God's law is neglected, the poor are forgotten. Death wins. And so the appropriate response to these outcomes, to these realities, is lament. We should lament the sin in the world and the sin in ourselves. We should grieve the suffering in humanity and the suffering in creation. We should shed tears at the neglect of God's Word because it is the source of peace that is hidden from so many. A songwriter that I enjoy named Josh Ritter has a lyric that goes, Throw away those lamentations, we both know them all too well. If there's a book of jubilations, we'll have to write it for ourselves. And when I first heard that lyric, I thought it was kind of a creative little challenge to Christianity. I I thought it was kind of a clever little turn of phrase. But I've come to believe that it's something else. I've actually come to believe that it's actually quite shallow because I've learned that lament, not joy, is the first tool of the prophet. I've learned that to seek first individual jubilation, individual happiness is to say, I don't care about the problems of the world. I've learned that to see the joy that comes without first lamenting the state of the world, the weight of sin, the yoke of injustice, is to announce that you don't quite care about where the world is. Because lament is how we critique suffering. Lament is how we critique those in power. Lament is how we critique injustice. And I can't sum it up any better than Walter Brueggemann in his book, The Prophetic Imagination. He says, The riddle and insight of biblical faith is the awareness that only anguish leads to life, only grieving leads to joy, and only embraced endings permit new beginnings. God's law teaches us to lament injustice. And the second thing that God's law teaches us in Psalm 119 is to love obedience. Take a look again at verses 133 through 135. Our psalmist says, Direct my steps by your word. Do not let any sin dominate me. Deliver me from oppressive men so that I can keep your precepts. Smile on your servant. Teach me your statutes. And again in in our opening verse, Your rules are marvelous Therefore, I observe them. But a love for obedience is not an easy thing to possess, is it? You know, parents, how many of you, when you tell your kids to do something, especially something they don't want to do, how many respond with, yes, Papa, your rules are marvelous. Therefore, I observe them. If they do, wow. Wow or how many of us when when april rolls around when tax season rolls around would feel inclined to call up the internal revenue service and say your instructions are a doorway through which light shines <laughs> we don't love rules We don't love regulations. We don't love restrictions. That's not our default position to love obedience, right? Society kind of tells us that there's no rock and roll and rule following. You know, it, because, you know, that's one of the underlying narratives of our age is that we kind of need to make our own way. We need to be the master of our own fate and the captain of our own soul. We need to not look to God to direct our steps, but to construct meaning and identity for ourselves to, to achieve and define our own path. And I, I don't have time to go into to all the difficulties with this this kind of late modern view of, of identity but, and, and neglect of God's instruction. But I do want to contend this morning that when we learn to love obedience, we find that the law tells us who we are by telling us whose we are. The law tells us who we are by telling us whose we are. What does that mean? Let me quick illustrate from two, two places in Scripture, Exodus 20. God is delivering the law unto Moses. And one of the very first things that God says in verses 2 and 3 of Exodus 20, it says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So when God gives a law, he doesn't lead with the command, he leads with the covenant. When God gives an instruction, he doesn't lead with the command, he leads with the relationship. God says, I'm your Lord. I'm the one who freed you out of slavery, out of oppression, and now I'm going to teach you how to live into that identity as my people. A love of obedience tells us who we are by telling us whose we are. Second place in Scripture Returning again to the Gospel of Luke, just before Jesus is arrested and just before he's put on trial, Luke says that he he went away to the Mount of Olives. He says that he knelt down and he prayed the following words. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. In this most famous verse, heart-wrenching act of obedience what is jesus's posture it's a posture of relationship it's relational he says father remove this cup yet not my will but yours be done that's because the identity of jesus is wholly defined by the identity of his father we know Jesus is the Son only as he is the Son in relationship to the Father, just as we know the Father as he is the Father in relationship to the Son. Jesus' identity is defined by this relationship, and that's what obedience does. It tells us who we are by telling us whose we are. Or, or as one uh, preacher put it, you know, traditional culture kind of tells us to find identity by looking outward to our social group. And modern culture more tells us to find identity by looking inward. But Christianity tells us to find identity by looking upward. Father, if you are willing. But not my wills, but your be done. Who we are is in whose we are. Uh, some of you might know that Laura and I are pretty big fans of the show, The Office. And when you think of The Office, you don't often think of the more few dramatic or kind of tender moments that happen. But I was thinking earlier this week about, about an interesting moment between the characters of Michael and Aaron. And uh, Aaron is, is an employee, and uh, she grew up an orphan with no father, uh, no mother figure, and she was in and out of orphanages and foster homes. And, and uh, so Aaron gets this new boyfriend, and Michael doesn't approve. And there's this moment where she's kind of upset about that, and she confronts him, and, and Michael says, well, well, why do you care if we don't like him? And she says, I care if you don't like him. And he says, well, why do you care if I don't like him? I'm not your father. And there's this pause and this this brief little moment, and you see the sadness kind of set in on her face. Because Aaron's never known a father figure. You know, Aaron never had a father to take an interest in her life, to take an interest or care about who she dated or what she did. Never had someone to call her their own to care for her and instruct her. And people who've grown up with little to no father figure or little to no mother figure understand in a unique and deep way the delight of the psalmist in God's instruction. They understand the plea, direct my steps by your word. They understand that the instruction of a father tells us we're not alone, tells us we belong. They understand that instruction tells us we have a heavenly Father who extends mercy to us, who gives light to our path, redeems us from oppression, who smiles upon us and imparts understanding and establishes our steps. That is where we find our identity, looking upward to our Father in heaven. And one of my favorite theologians says it this way, gospel and law as the concrete content of God's word imply always a seizure of man. No matter what God's word says to man, it always tells him that he is not just his own, but God's. And this brings us to the third and final thing that we learn from God's law this morning. And God's law teaches us to lament injustice, to love obedience, and it teaches us to learn Christ. I debated which translation I would preach from this morning uh, because each of them have their own strengths and idiosyncrasies, and uh, particularly in relation to verse 130. In verse 130, the NET, what I've been preaching from, says your instructions are a doorway through which light shines. Um, In contrast... The NRSV says, the unfolding of your words gives light. But my favorite translation came from one of the commentators that I consulted. This is how he put verse 130. The opening up of your words, it gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And I can hardly read this opening up language without thinking of one final moment from the Gospel of Luke, the life of Jesus. It's the story of the road to Emmaus. And Jesus has been crucified, he's been resurrected, and he meets these two pilgrims who are headed on their way to the city of Emmaus. And they don't recognize him though, so they start talking about all these events that have just happened in Jerusalem about Jesus to him. And he eventually says to them in verse 26, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. And so the story continues on for a moment and these men invite Jesus into dinner with them and he accepts and it picks up in verse 30 when he was at the table with them. He took bread. He blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? When the insight of God's instruction And God's word is open to us. It is always done by Jesus Christ. The opening up of your words gives light. Indeed, it does. And it gives light through the light of the world, Jesus Christ. He is the unfolding of the light of God's word. He is the face of God shining down upon us. He is God's wonderful declaration, God's marvelous command, God's glorious word of salvation to us. And if you wanna know how to read the law, if you wanna know how to read the Old Testament, if you wanna know how to read the entire Bible, look at the opening up of light in Jesus Christ. The law of God teaches us to learn Christ. Because from him, understanding comes. He says, learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble at heart. And he invites us to read all of scripture through him. To see God's law as a beautiful declaration of whose we are. And whose we are is God's. We are his children. Have you felt that burning within your heart from Jesus Christ? Have you listened to his understanding? Have you let him transform your heart and your mind and let that word speak to you, a word of grace and salvation? I pray that you would. Let's stand and listen to that word as we praise him together, church.